As we come now to God's Word, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians in chapter 4. That's Philippians chapter 4. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, help us now by your Spirit to seek you. Lord, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And as we come to your world, to your word, would you both humble us and strengthen us? Would you guide us now by your spirit? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this is the book of Philippians in chapter 4. I'll begin in verse 10 and read almost to the end of the chapter. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Now, you'll remember if you've been with us in the past couple of weeks that in the previous section, just before this, Paul has outlined for the Philippians and then for us what life looks like as a follower of Jesus. So he's talked about what it means to rejoice in the Lord always. And he, he talked about the peace of God, which guards our hearts and minds in Christ. So now that he's talked about, in some sense, what it looks like for the Christian, now as he closes in a roundabout way here in our section today, he's, he's saying thanks to the Philippians uh, for the financial gift that they had given him. And there's so much in this sermon that I, I, in this section, that I think I'll have to split it into two sermons. Next week will be our, our final week in Philippians. Next week we'll look at 
what it looks like that the Lord supplies our needs. But this week, you'll notice in this text that he doesn't actually say the words, thank you. He does it in a roundabout way, leading some uh, writers to say this is a thankless thanks. Uh, But Paul's not being ungrateful here. I mean, he opens this section by saying, rejoice in the Lord again. There's that joy again. He's very glad that this thing has happened, that they've given this gift. And yet he wants them to know that it is not about the money. There are bigger things here. It's really about contentment. It's about being content. Paul said he's been brought low and he's abounded. He's faced plenty and hunger. He's had abundance and need. And whatever situation, he says, I'll be content. Now, that is fascinatingly mysterious, especially considering that Paul, we know, is now awaiting his trial as he sits in jail. And as he does this, he says, I am content. And we know, based on what he says, that this contentment does not come to him naturally. He says twice in the text that it was something he had learned, that he needed to learn as a secret, he says. That word secret is interesting. We hear that a lot when, when, for example, someone loses a lot of weight or when someone just has that perfect pie recipe, or if someone just never seems to age, sometimes you'll hear people ask them, what's your secret? You know know something that I don't know. You've got some insight into this, and I want you to share that with me. In other words, what is the key that will unlock this door? And I want to know the key, too. I want to know the key to contentment. There's lots of reasons for that, but especially I think the way that he words it in brought low and abounding and plenty and hunger, abundance and need, the way he words that reminds me of my wedding vows. Many of us, I I would imagine, said this. Some vows are different, but we vow for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to take the person. And in that marriage, we don't just want to have to get through it or just survive the marriage. We want, in the midst of our marriages, to have joyful contentment there. Paul could say to us here, hey, listen, I'm not married. He was a single guy. Singleness, according to him, is good. Uh, Paul says, I'm not married, but, but I do know the secret to a contented marriage. Because what he says to us here applies at home, in our workplaces, on vacation, literally whatever circumstances we're in. He says, I have learned the secret of contentment as a follower of Jesus. And if he can learn it, I think we can too. We can learn this. We can actually grow in this. Now, before we actually do this, we need to talk about 
what it is that we're learning. What does Paul mean when he talks here about contentment in, at the end of verse 11? In whatever situation I am to be content, he says. Now, that's a tricky, a tricky word. Let me show you why. A similar word is used in John's gospel when Jesus uh, is feeding the 5,000. So all these people have now come to Jesus, and, and Jesus tells his disciples, uh, go and buy bread to feed everybody. And the disciples rightly say, um, we don't have enough money for that. Uh, even, even half a year's wages would not even be enough for, to barely cover this. All we have is five loaves and two fish. And of course, uh, so as a result, they say, we don't have enough. And Jesus, in his power, makes it more than enough. We know he multiplies it miraculously. But part of what Paul means here by the word contentment is to be enough to be sufficient. Now, if that were the end of it, it would be nice and simple, but what makes this tricky is that's not exactly the word that Paul uses here in Philippians. He attaches a prefix to the beginning of the word. It's not just the word sufficient. He attaches a prefix that means self. So we could translate this word that shows up as contentment as self-sufficient. I am to be self-sufficient, Paul has said. Now at this point, as soon as I say that, maybe for some of you, alarm bells are ringing in our minds. Oh, 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 wait a minute, we say. Self-sufficiency, that sounds uh, less like the Bible and more like something Dr. Phil might say. Self-sufficiency, maybe that sounds less like the gospel of grace and more like a gospel of law and hard work. And maybe sounds less like a Christian mentality and more like a survivalist mentality that we have to stockpile the, sh the shelves so we'll be self-sufficient. When, when we look at this, we go, Paul, how can he say be self-sufficient? I mean, didn't he say already to the Philippians that they're to be in union with Christ and therefore with each other? Didn't Paul call them to welcome ministering to one another's needs in support of one another? Didn't Paul say at the very beginning of this letter that we're to be in koinonia partnership, that we rise and fall together in the love of Jesus? Yes, he did say that. Good memory. And so Paul here is not contradicting everything he's already said. He's not backpedaling here. He hasn't forgotten at all. So he still means all of those things that were to be interconnected. So what does he mean by self-sufficiency? The word here, he's playing on a modern day for his time, a Stoic philosophy. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. Uh, Socrates was famous for this. You may know his, his name. Stoics thought that self-sufficiency was the basis of all virtue that a person was really supposed to be independent of all things by the strength of his own will. And that's not quite what Paul means by this word. When he says, though, uh, to be self-sufficient, what he means is we're not to be dependent 
in any lasting way upon outside circumstances. So Paul could say, whether I receive the financial gift or not, whether I have the emotional support of people or not, whether my belly is full of food or not, I will still have sufficiency for contentment. Now, at this point, we need to be thoughtful and apply a bit of wisdom here. We don't want to oversimplify this to make contentment something that it is not. So, what does godly contentment, the kind that Paul's talking about, what does that mean? A person who has godly contentment still feels. This is different than the Stoics. We still have the phrase, if someone has a Stoic expression, if you know what that, that phrase, a Stoic expression, it just means completely blank, entirely unaffected by anything that's happening around them, no emotion whatsoever. And that's common, actually, even in our day, to act like we don't care about things. Because if I don't care, I'm really protecting myself from hurt. That is different than godly contentment. Godly contentment cares deeply. We see that in Jesus. In Matthew, we could go lots of places. Matthew chapter 9, for example. Matthew writes this at the end uh, of chapter 9 in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus doesn't look at these needy people and go, ah, well, it's God's will. We're supposed to be content. Jesus felt for them deep in his guts, so much so that he's calling them to act on this, to be sent out like missionaries and to pray for that. So that brings us to another piece. Godly contentment still moves toward change. Contentment doesn't just sit on the couch and go, ah, I'm content. That's laziness. We want change on some level. We want people to come to know Jesus. Even within ourselves, we want change. That We do this every week when we have our time of confession and repentance. We're actually saying, Lord, this is true of me. I want you to change this. This is wrong of me. I know I'm disobedient. Lord, change me. We do that every Sunday to cultivate that in ourselves. And even life circumstances can be affected by change. We know that Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's speaking there to single people, to married people, and to slaves or bond servants. And he says in that chapter some fascinating things about contentment. He, 
He says, I want you to lead the life that the Lord has called you to. And he says, I want you to remain in the condition in which you were called, even with all of its challenges. I want you to learn how to be content in that. And yet, he also says in that chapter that in a marriage, if one of the marriage partners leaves, which we call willful desertion, the other is free to divorce, free to pursue change. And he says to the slaves or the bond servants, I want you to be content in your situation, but if, but if you've got the opportunity to take your freedom, you should take it. Contentment doesn't mean we just sit back and take whatever comes without a thought or desire for change. Thirdly, godly contentment still has personal aspirations and hopes and ambitions. We've heard earlier in the letter to the Philippians, Paul says in chapter 2 that he hopes he'll be set free from prison. He, of course, wants the chains to be gone so that he can come and visit the Philippians. He also says, I hope, I'm trying, I'm pushing forward, I'm pressing on toward the prize for the upward call of God. He has desires and hopes for particular things in himself and in them. We can pursue that. And sometimes some of these things need special training, education, practice, preparation. Those things can be good. And godly contentment does not ignore the need for that. Finally, godly contentment still seeks help. The most helpful thing to me in trying to keep my mind on track of what Paul means by godly contentment is in Luke's gospel in chapter 18. Where is it? Ah, here at the beginning. Luke 18, this will guide us in in godly contentment. Luke 18, verse 1, this is Jesus now telling a parable. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In telling this parable... Jesus is not praising the unrighteous judge. That's not his point. He's praising the acts of the persistent 
widow, that we would learn from her that she is relentlessly seeking justice, always praying and not losing heart, even justice for her, her own benefit. And godly contentment is not in conflict with this. Godly contentment still seeks help. Now, the hard part about all of this is that while godly contentment still does and seeks these things, it does it without disintegrating into sin. So it does not enter into envy. It does not enter into pride. It does not enter into greed or covetousness. It does not enter into complaining. That's the hard part. So now the question that comes up in my mind is, how? How does it do that? What is the secret to godly contentment? And Paul tells us. He says at the end of verse 12, I've learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. Here it is. You could put a colon there at the end of that. Here's the secret. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I go, <laughs> some secret. <laughs> I mean, isn't every Sunday school answer Jesus? You know, of course, he's going to go, oh, the secret to contentment, it's Jesus. And we go, oh, I could have called that a mile away. You know, it, it, and even beyond that, this is probably the most famous line in the entire book of Philippians. I mean, we see it uh, plastered on walls and T-shirts, especially sports equipment and weightlifting things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's not necessarily wrong to have this verse put there. There can be some truth in those circumstances in applying that verse there, but there is a danger in doing that. We don't want to fall into a mindset that this is about mere determination. It is not that. When Paul says he can do all things, he does not mean I can do whatever I set my mind to. That's not only not biblical, that's not logical. Think of the child who's up in the top of a tree and goes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and decides he's going to jump and fly. Have I, I hope I'm not telling story, real stories about some of you. You're going to end up with some broken bones that way. That's not what he means. When he says, I can do all things, he means I can do all of these things that I've mentioned. I can face the types of situations and circumstances that I've talked about, the hunger and abundance, the plenty and need. In other words, in whatever circumstances I face, Jesus will be enough for me. Jesus will be sufficient for me. Because Jesus is with me, and Jesus is my strength. That's what he means. 
The real secret here is that contentment comes not by changing our circumstance, but by changing our hearts. An old uh, 17th century writer, boy, I tend to quote old people, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote an entire book about one verse here in Philippians, 130-some pages. There's a lot in these verses. But he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I love that, that Christian contentment would be a rare jewel. And so he thought a lot about this verse. And he says this. I think this is helpful for us. These are his words now. The way of contentment is to make one's desires and one's circumstances even and equal. A carnal heart, in other words, a heart that does not know Jesus, a carnal heart knows no way to be contented but this. I have such and such possessions, and if I had this added to them, and the other comfort added that I don't have now, then I should be contented. Or perhaps if I have lost my possessions, if only I could have given to me something to make up that loss, then I should be a contented man. But contentment does not come in that way. A heart that has no grace and is not instructed in this mystery of contentment knows of no way to get contentment but to have his possessions raised up to his desires. But the Christian, the Christian has another way of contentment. That is, he can bring his desires down to his possessions, and so he attains contentment. The world is infinitely deceived into thinking that contentment lies in having more than we already have, but here lies at the bottom the root of all contentment. When there is an evenness and proportion between our hearts and our circumstances. That's why many godly men who are in low position live more sweet and comfortable lives than those who are richer. What Burroughs is getting at here, based on what Paul has told us, is that contentment comes when desires and circumstances match. And the carnal heart will try to change the circumstance to match the desire. But the Christian heart allows Jesus to change the desires to match the circumstance. That's what Paul is getting at when he talks about his thorn in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You'll remember, he doesn't name what the thorn is, but this thing that's harassing and bothering him. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 8, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. My grace is contentment for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A Stoic idea of self-sufficiency sees the self as strong, strong enough to stand alone. But a Christian idea of self-sufficiency sees the self as weak, as one that needs to be surrendered to God. And when that self is surrendered to God, it is the perfect arena in which God will display his power and his sufficiency in Christ. And Paul says then, I am content because I've learned this through the battering ram of experience. That when I am weak, when I am low, when I am hungry, when I am in need, then I will see the power of God in all of his glory at work in me. Hmm. Now, I could stop here. That'd be a nice, beautiful place to end, wouldn't it? Nice short sermon even. People go, oh, preacher ended on time. Way to go. Give me a few more minutes. Because if I stop here, I have not told the full, full story of what Paul has said, and I think I would do us a disservice. You'll notice that Paul says he's learned to be content in every circumstance. What do I mean there? He says... It's when I'm brought low and when I'm hungry and when I'm needy. But he also talks about the flip side of the coin, that he needs to learn to be content when he abounds, when he has plenty, when he's in abundance. These things, the high things when we are full, these are a far greater threat to our contentment. Because in the midst of abundance, we might be tempted to find strength in things other than Jesus. We know we live under the, the banner of the American dream. And much of that is good. We have so many freedoms and opportunities and even possessions that may be good gifts from God. But we can tell that we are not content in them because we get so angry when there's even a hint that they might be taken away. You are folks that are furious because those people are taking our jobs or when the roads or highways that I'm so used to using are under construction, I get so angry because I have a right to use this road. Or when my Wi-Fi goes out for just a moment, my electricity, I, uh, 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 where will I watch YouTube? Uh, I can't access Netflix. My, my TV cable has gone out, and we, we, we flip into a panic. We are not content with our abundance. We see here that far greater discontent comes out of abundance than out of need. It is usually the ones who have plenty 
who are the greediest. And we need the strength of Jesus to guard us from that. This is not only from material things, of course, we, we know it's even more than that. The, the music artist Moby, if you don't know who that is, that's okay, you don't need to, is a, is popular in the 90s. Um, he described what, what he calls the kick in the teeth of fame. He said at the height of his career as an artist, he was also the most depressed and almost killed himself. He tells a story about a time when he was in Barcelona, Spain, uh, at the MTV Music Awards, one of which he won. He'd, he'd just performed to sold-out concerts, and he, he got this hotel where the top floor had four apartments, and at the time it was the 90s, so the most exclusive popular people were there. One room was his, the other was P. Diddy's, and, and Bon Jovi's, and Madonna's. Boy, doesn't, that doesn't show the time, does it? Yeah, that was the 90s. So all of these popular people, height of his career, and he describes himself as just feeling despondent. He says this. These are his words. You think when you get to where you want to go, finally you'll be happy. But then you get to where you want to go, and you're just as miserable as you were. In fact, you're even more miserable because you no longer have anything to aspire to, and you feel this hopelessness because what's left to aspire toward? Moby here has learned through experience part of Paul's secret that abundance does not bring contentment. There is not contentment in an abundance of money and possessions not in an abundance of fame or success, in a strong, healthy body, in a close-knit family, in a good job that you love and are good at, in a lot of likes on your Facebook post. An abundance of these things does not bring Contentment. In fact, if these things are left unchecked, they may drive us further away because we will forget that Jesus is our strength. It is the kindness and love of God to remind us of His sufficiency that even sometimes for a season, he might turn our plenty into hunger. He might turn our abundance into need, so that with Paul we learn, come to really know the secret of godly contentment, that Jesus really is the center of it all. So on our fullest day, our highest abundance where we have the, the biggest awards and the nice hotels, you do all these things only through Christ who strengthens you. And on your emptiest day, when you are alone and writing a letter from prison, 
you do all these things through Christ who strengthens you. So Christian, be content. Would you pray with me? Mm. Lord, would you help us to learn and grow in these things because they do not come natural to us. Lord, would you change our hearts toward yours? That whatever circumstance we face, the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, we would know that Jesus is our strength. Help us to hold you as our center because you are God and because you love us and care for us. And we give you all thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.